HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com hrn today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com hrn. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember, hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast with the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome New York Times food writer, Eric Kim. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Eric about making a career in food writing, his new cookbook, Korean American. And we'll hear Eric's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Food and food writing is really how Julia discovered who she was. 
Not only did she learn cooking to open up a whole world of possibilities for her, she excelled at choosing bon mots and writing pithy guidance. In return, the public embraced these talents. But none of that happened overnight. Julia's groundbreaking first and now legendary cookbook, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, took some nine years and two publishing contracts before landing in print. The R&D process was grueling. Fueled by a dedication Julia had to getting it right, especially for the audience she was aiming to reach, average Americans. Someone who shares Julia's devotion to getting his food writing just right and a desire to share it with the American public and beyond is Eric Kim. A New York Times staff writer, Eric hosts regular videos on NYT Cooking's YouTube channel, in addition to writing a monthly column for the New York Times Magazine. He began his professional career teaching writing and literature at Columbia University. After joining the editorial team at Food Network, he then worked his way up to be a contributing editor at Savoir Magazine and wrote for Food 52. Born and raised in Atlanta, he lives in New York City with his rescue pup, Quentin Compson, a.k.a. Q. Eric joins us today to talk about his path to food writing and his debut cookbook, Korean American, Food That Tastes Like Home. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Hey, Todd. Thanks for having me. Wow, that, that was an intro. That's I've never <laughs> <laughs> thought of myself in relation to Julia, but the, the line when you said that she you know, turned to food writing to help her discover herself, that, that I, really, I really relate to that. Wow. Well, good. We, we, we try with our intros. <laughs> so actually, that's a perfect segue to my first question, which, and I kind of want to divide it up. So uh, don't skip ahead. I want to talk to you because I think um, for those who don't know your work, I personally think one of the things you excel at is being a writer without food mm. needing to modify that. And then, mm. so I wanted to sort of find out when you discovered you wanted to become a writer before we talk about becoming a food writer. If you can differentiate the two. You know, I think I can. I mean, I think about this all the time, especially because, you know, if I were to really truly answer when did I decide I wanted to become a writer, it was probably only last year. I think people <laughs> would find that really <laughs> annoying, annoying of an answer. But <laughs> I mean, like, but, you know, the point is, I didn't know I would end up here. I think I just I was doing jobs and I was finding myself back to writing you know, each and every step of the way. And, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. So when I look back, I can tell when it really started and how it happened later. But, you know, I don't, I wonder, I wonder how many people are ever able to actually just call themselves writers. That That's such a distinction to me that I, I take very seriously. And I only just started to really lean into because of this staff writing job, which is my first staff writing position ever. You know, I've always been an editor. Editors write, of course, but... I mean, I think if I were to tell the fun story, it's I remember distinctly in third grade, um, I, I wrote and illustrated <laughs> like children's books for my class. They, you know, I would just bind them with stapler and kind of color them in. And they, they were a third grader definitely wrote these, but my teacher was really supportive and she would put them in the library and kids would check the book out. And I, so I, I like wrote a lot of those kinds of books for my classmates in third grade. And so I think from back then, I always knew that I wanted to write a book. I just didn't, I never knew what kind of book it would be until, until like last year. Yeah. 
That's an adorable story. Do you remember the subject matter <laughs> of those third grade books? Were they food related or totally not about puppies? Oh, or- you, you know, uh, I, I bet there was food in them. But, you know, for instance, um, there's that children's book about this girl named Camilla who likes lima beans. And uh, anyway, like the Hungry Caterpillar, um, the Very Hungry Caterpillar, there are these children's books that I think I was inspired by. So it was probably some some level of like a food item plus an animal plus a child or I really don't remember the, you know. And when did you discover, so let's take a different tack, which is separate because you don't have mm. to be a writer to be this. When when do you feel like you discovered you were a food person? Mm. The food person thing, I think it really came in grad school. So right after college, I started a PhD program at Columbia. I had wanted to be an English professor for so long. And part of the draw of that job or that, you know, that job description was getting to write books. It was sort of like you were encouraged to write books or sometimes kind of like threatened to write books or you wouldn't get tenure. And so it's this whole thing where I was like, oh, I, I, want, I would want to write about something, you know, at length. Um, so that that really drew me to academia. But then after my third year, I, I totally like flunked my oral exam and they told me I could take it again or I would, um, or I could uh, drop, I could like leave with a master's degree. And so I, I left with a master's degree as did many of my classmates that year actually. And cause it's, it's really hard to be, I think it's really hard to be an academic. I, I, I really think that life is, it's very, um, it's more challenging than it seems from the outside. And I, I, I think I found that it just wasn't for me. And so I had a kind of a long conversation with my brother and he told me, you know, I was trying to decide, do I, do I leave this career that I've been, you know, working hard towards since 10th grade of high school, or do I try something else? And he, he kind of, that day he said, Eric, you've always loved food. Like food is just always the thing that you are doing on the side. You're always writing about it, cooking it, um, thinking about it, watching it. Um, I think that in that moment, I, I didn't know what that would mean for my career. I don't. I didn't have the words food writer in my head at all, but um, I knew that I had to follow that itch. There was something there that, Clearly, food was always integral and like a centrifugal force in my life. And I think it's every food person you ask might might have some kind of cheesy story like that. But there's something about us that draws us to food, and that's why we do it. I think I always try to remind myself that I've been thinking about this for my whole life. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that's cheesy at all. I think it's genuine. Thank you. And um, uh, so I, I don't want to leap ahead too much to the to the book, but I think <laughs> the the book is yeah. very personal, and um, you know it has a bit of an autobiographical feel, even though it does many other things. But one of the things oh. you talk about is being the, the the son of immigrant parents and all the implications of that, and particularly in terms of. Um, career and intellectual aspiration. So, I, mm. it, I'm, it's interesting that your brother was your first advisor. How did your parents <laughs> kind of take the news, or did you were you able to kind of conceal that you were maybe thinking about you know working in food from them? <laughs> you know, I, th- I think you could tell in the first few pages that uh, I, <laughs> I was probably a bit of a rebel of a child. Um, but I think the one thing is the reason I was such. A rebel. The reason I kind of would rebel against what my parents really wanted was that um, I think I was just always quite sure of what I wanted to do next. At least, like I, I had impulses, and I knew that if I followed them, they would lead me to something good. And my parents, you know, when when I when I quit school, they were like, you know, we we support you. Deep down, though, you know, they they were 
sort of Terrified. wonder. Yeah, they were wondering. They were like, oh, man, Eric, you got into that really great program. You should finish it. It's only three more years. But I, I don't know. I, and so it took a little convincing. But I think because my whole life they had – they they never had to doubt me. You know, they always trusted me. I always got straight A's. Like, you know, like I was like a good student. Maybe if if I was like behaviorally a little a little bit of a brat, but I think um, you know, I always had their support because they trusted me. And I think with this, they just watched me um, figure it out on my own. They they supported me. They encouraged me to maybe go back to school every you know Thanksgiving. And then <laughs> and then um, I think once I started to write articles that had hundreds of comments under them and uh, where people would claim, you know, say that the piece made them cry or it made them, reminded them of their brother. Or I think once they saw the reaction to the writing and they started to, they were able to physicalize it. They're like, oh, this is, Eric's actually doing something bigger than what he was originally trying to do. And and, and now um, I think they get to see the effects because I, I like text them and I'm like, Hey, I'm uh I'm gonna be on TV in an hour if you want to tune in, and then they um you know they tune in and they're like, wow, Eric's on TV. Uh, so it's it's all very new for us, but I think they are definitely they they recognize the import now of this job because I think I found something that I get to do in the privacy of my home and I get to say what I really want to say and feel and what I feel strongly about, which is food and food culture and history and cultural context. And and I think they are just happy that people are reading it. And yeah, <laughs> so I, I think, you know, their reaction was that they were always supportive, but it's nice that I get to prove to them, see, I have, a, I have this book now and now I'm like a real food writer and I can, you don't have to worry anymore about my, my bills and or about me, like you know, making monies because I can I can feed myself now. <laughs> well, and I I think for all parents, a, a book is nice because it's very concrete. It's traditional. Yeah. It it lives on, and and it, it it's it, even even though the the dirty secret is writing cookbooks themselves is not necessarily the the pathway to riches or or long term security. It it's concrete <laughs> in a way that is sort of societally understood and accepted. Yeah, there there is something to be said too about just holding an object. Like you can't see it right here, but I think the reason I went into academia in the first place is because I just loved books. I loved holding them. I loved the smell of them, and so I have this huge library of fiction because that's that's what I studied. And um, I, I, and what's really lovely is reading it on the page is very different. I think ironically, I'm I'm someone who is online a lot and a lot of my words are online, but every Wednesday there is a food section that comes out in the New York Times and there's a magazine that comes out every Saturday and I'm there once once a month. And so it's just, um, it kind of hits different as, as the kids my age say. It's like it hits different when you get to hold the object and you get to see your words on the screen. And actually I edit my pieces um, on my phone because it's... Um, there's something about spatializing the words in a different way to to help you see it clearer, and it's something that's easier to do when you're holding it and not on a screen, you know, I like typing away anyway. Well, no, and definitely for formatting, things like that, once you th- see things adapted for mobile, all kinds of horrors come out that you don't see in yes. other <laughs> ways. So, yeah, no, that is a great yeah. idea. I've done that some, mostly when I'm just looking at how it's going to appear on mobile, but that's a great tip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So with all of that in mind, that's a perfect segue to what I, I wanted to ask you about as a sort of, as a younger food writer who's, you know, mm-hmm actually come up through traditional food media, but, you know, is making YouTube videos for the New York Times. 
what do you think about print medias, particularly print media for food? Does it still have a future and a place or do you see it diminishing or do you just see it evolving? What What are your thoughts on that? Oh, man, it's such a hard question because I think I have my like professional expert answer as someone who has been in media for a while. But I think the answer I really want to say is that I don't know what kind of future it has. I think it does have a future. Um I think it maybe it's going to be in a diminished capacity, but I think print, I think we're nostalgic people and there are still, you know, people who are trying to uphold this print media and I, and I don't know, I'm, 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 I support it. I think, I, you know, digital is where everything is at. And as long as there's a digital presence, you know, it's the digital presence that can pay for the print. And it's, it's a matter of if these, publications are going to prioritize the print. And I think what's really sad for me, actually, is I've had multiple pieces end up in magazines that fold right after they're in, my, my piece is in there, so that I feel like I've just slipped it in in time. So that <laughs> And um, these magazines just kind of start disappearing, you know? And it's really sad because as a kid, that was my dream to have writing in in print, in 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 a newspaper, in a magazine, but, and I'm very lucky that I get to write for the Times as a staff writer, but I'm thinking about maybe a couple of years ago when I was a freelancer and, you know, I, I knew that my piece was maybe the last print issue that would ever be for, you know, insert food publication. It's just kind of, um, it's sad when, it's sad to know that that old thing is becoming uh, a little bit outdated, but you know what, you know what I really believe though is, I, whether it's digital or print, I, I think as long as you, the focus is on the writing, I've always believed that if I, I, no matter what I was doing, I knew that if I just went at it with quality in mind and focusing on the words and the writing, then the other stuff would come later. And so I am in YouTube videos, and actually the the Times has me on their TikTok now, the, the NYT Cooking <laughs> has them. I mean, I, you know, I'm like not even, I'm just so not there yet um, personally, but I just shoot, I just, I, I know that, you know, all these, all these different new platforms have a shelf life. And so I know that as long as my words are there um, and that I've made a career out of that, it doesn't matter where I am. Um, I think my career will stand on its own. And I've always believed that. And it's kind of advice I would like to give to younger writers as well. It's like, just believe in your craft because it doesn't matter where you are. We're all just like images reflected into the media, you know, but if you have your own voice and if you believe in your writing, I think that will take you very far and it will sustain your career. Well, ask me in like two years, but I'd like to think that, you know, my career is just starting and it started from traditional media for sure. Yeah. No, I think that's all very true and, and wise. And, and, and I think it's great. You know, if, uh, I loved Savoir Magazine as a print magazine and, and was yeah, really sad yeah, about its, its, its demise in that regard. But then also, it's really easy to find your writing for Food 52 online and, and you don't have to yeah. search through back and, you know, it, it lives there. And as you say, it, it, it's known to move people to tears. So um, for those who haven't read it, you can find Eric's work on Food 52 online very easily. And I think the other thing I wanted to mention and, and discuss with you is this which fits in perfectly to what you were saying, this dichotomy, because one thing people have found is that cookbooks seem to work better in the physical world, that this idea mm. that, you know, there's not big sales of cookbooks as ebooks and even all these recipe apps, none of them have really like rocketed to be the the thing that that's absolutely used. 
And, yeah. but, but there's that, it, how do you look at that inherent kind of contradiction? You know, um, I swear I'm not just saying this cause I'm a, I'm an employee and they, they told me to say it just kidding. They didn't tell me to say this, but NYT cooking does have, a, <laughs> <laughs> we do have a million subscribers and I, I love using it because it's, oh God, I sound like an ad. I'm sorry. But I'm, I was a fan before. Everyone's a fan, kind of like before they, you know, join or before they have a recipe featured in there. And you know, it, the one reason I love it is because the app stays open. It's just a random technical feature. I have worked on multiple like food apps before for other brands, but NYT Cooking has it so that the app stays on. Like your phone stays on while you're on that recipe page. It never locks it, so you never have to touch your phone while you're cooking it. Sorry, I just <laughs> think, no, I, think I didn't NYT know that the app. Yeah. I think the app is really quality and the, the recipes are tested, but sorry, to go back to your original question, what was your original question again? Sorry. <laughs> well, what you think about the dichotomy between what you were just talking about with online uh, and then the fact that actually cookbooks themselves have, at least in aggregate, increased in sales and, and that yeah. consumers still seem drawn to what is essentially a very old-fashioned, if not you know, a couple thousand years old type of material. yeah. I've been thinking a lot about this because I don't think people talk enough about. As writers, we do the we we write and edit the book, but then there's the part where you have to build it from scratch and you work with the designer. And you know, one one really cool feature that I I didn't know about was they they asked me if I wanted a straight spine or a curved spine, and I had no idea what that meant. But I'm so glad we went with curved because what that means is when you open the book up to any page, it lies flat and it it's very readable and it's just like. I love that because um, I know that people can cook from it easily and they won't like bend their book. It's just, it's a very readable book. It opens up well. And just those physical details, getting to work on those physical details meant that I was then able to think about readers actually cooking from the book and uh, physicalizing the futurity of people's kitchen cooking like through this book. That was a very, um, that was a wonderful experience. It was so, it's such an intimate experience that, um, you know, I, I can't wait for people to have this in their hands on the 29th and for people to cook from it because, and then, and then people always say, people have been telling me, um, I'm going to dog ear the book or they, they, people keep saying dog ear. Um, <laughs> and, and a part of me is like, no, not my book. It's like brand new. How, how could you fold over those beautiful pages? But actually, the point is for people to cook from hell, like cook like hell from it. Like all of my Nigella cookbooks are so battered, and I'm so proud of that. They're not precious objects to me in the way that you know they're like beautiful art objects. They are lived-in experiences, and I want people to stain them. And mine is actually already stained with like milk bread, you know, dough, like literally on the pages. You can see that section is very creased and. Uh, yeah, I, I love I love cooking from hard co- hard copies, and maybe it's that. Maybe it's that cooking is so, you know, tactile, and maybe that's what it is. All right, after the break, we're going to be back to talk more with Eric and get into the details on his new cookbook, Korean American. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a restaurant marketing and commerce platform that helps you get discovered, make more money, and engage your diners so that you can deliver great hospitality, both in person and online. A Brooklyn fan favorite, Reunion is truly a love letter to Tel Aviv. Opening its doors in 2014, 
customers adore this light-filled cafe for its authentic Israeli comfort food, including shakshuka, falafel, and a variety of mezes. Reunion is one of over 8,000 restaurants that leverages Bento Box to power their digital front door, including their website, online ordering, event management, and more. Visit getbento.com hrn to learn more and get your first month free. That's getbento.com hrn. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We're talking to New York Times food writer Eric Kim about his debut cookbook, Korean American, Food That Tastes Like Home. So as I mentioned earlier in the show, it's a, it's a very personal and beautifully written book that also is a cookbook. And actually, it's a really comprehensive cookbook. It is chock full of recipes. And we're going to talk a little bit about the structure too, but just equating it to, to mastering, how long did it take you to write and develop everything that's in this book? Oh my God. Um, <laughs> I don't think people realize how painful the experience is. It's, it's so much manual labor, you know? So it took about <laughs> a <laughs> It's just like, uh, there were nights where I was just typing away and being like, I don't even know what these sentences are anymore. I'm just, because it's, you, I filed 70,000 words. It took a year to write 70,000 words and we had to cut it down to about, you know, 60 and, or something like that. But <laughs> I think um, the point is, that it takes a long time to write and develop the recipes a year, but then it takes a whole year to edit it. And the editing is really where, as most like many writers know, that's where the real writing happens and the real rigor. And um, just filing that first draft, it's like a, it's kind of like, (laughs) it's actually exactly the same as turning in a term paper for college. Like it's no different. I, I talk about this with my journalist friends all the time. I'm like, our lives are never going to be different from college, are they? Like, wh- when are we going to grow up? Like, why is this? It's just the same feeling of that deadline. And but um, you know, I think also uh, a debut book. There's a lot of pressure there, and I knew that this was kind of my my splash. It was sort of a a first time introduction to people who had never heard of me before, and my face isn't even on the book, like in the book at all. And I I knew I wanted to tell a certain story, and I wanted. To, to do it well, and I think um, one thing that was really surprising for me is that when the when the cookbook was input into you know all the databases and the systems and you know Amazon and what have you, um, it was filed under cookbooks and then also under memoir and biography. And I thought that was so. I was like, oh, you're right. I guess it is kind of an autobiography. I guess it is a memoir. It's like full of essays, and and I just always took that for granted. Essay writing is just something I've been doing since. Again, I was at college, and so you know, you, you you turn in an essay for a class, and then you turn in an essay for your your first byline, and then you turn in an essay for um, a Mother's Day feature in the New York Times, and then 
And then the head notes for recipes are basically little essays. And an essay is really just a form of writing. And I think we we forget about that. And um, I think this is also just the type of cookbook I like reading, memoiristic cookbooks. And I didn't realize how many words I had written until they filed it under memoir. So I'm glad it's <laughs> I'm glad it's under both categories because it's definitely a book you read from from start to finish, or you can if you'd like. Okay, you didn't answer the core of the question, but I'm going to let you off for a minute because <laughs> that's a good segue to my other question, which is, you know, for I've had the privilege to see it in advance, and it's very much mm. this this memoir about your childhood and your relationship with mm. your parents, but it's particularly dedicated to your mom and um, who you called who you call by her first name Jean, and um, I was. Did you did you set out to write it that way, or is it something that evolved in the process, or was the concept more about writing about being Korean and American and and the intersection between the those cultures and ways of eating and cooking? You know, it, it actually did start out the the the, the title wasn't Korean American in the beginning. I, the The book proposal was titled "The Essentials of Korean American." Cooking, which sounds so boring, um, <laughs> and I know that it was never going to be a final, final title. But I think originally my plan was to report across the country and try to gain a snapshot of the Korean American communities across America and try to find semblances of connection and um, and disconnection. But but yeah, I just think that eventually I I pivoted completely and I was like, okay, it's not about all of Korean America. It's about Korean American in relationship to my mom. It's my it's a, my mother's story. It's not even about me. Even the photo shoot, which was a year into the book writing, I was like, um, I don't want my face in here, but let's have Jean's face all over it. It's about her. And then I think it was through the edits and then through the writing and then the grueling process of all of that where I started to recognize that I, I'm not divorced from my mother. And I think I didn't have the confidence when I first started to claim that I was part of the story until I, you know, basically took a masterclass in Korean cooking by living with her for a year, you know, writing this book with her and learning about her pantry and her methods and also gaining confidence in my own cooking as a New York Times staff writer. You know, I, I was doing this every day as well, you know, with other recipes. And so all this to say, it evolved. It totally evolved in a beautiful way that I think makes sense for the title of the book, which is the Korean part is, you know, it's, it's my mother's my mother's food, my mother's homeland, but the American part is an extension of her cooking. Um, it's, it's, it's who I am as her son, but also as someone who has always had to straddle these two nations, you know, my whole life, South Korea, which is where my parents were born, and, and the United States, specifically Atlanta, where I was born. So it, it became this thesis statement that felt really great. And I didn't get to fit this into the book, but it's Korean American without a hyphen because Korean is an adjective for American. And so I think people, uh, you know, some people might open this and expect a, a Korean cookbook, and there are aspects of Korean cooking in here. But my argument is that Korean cooking in America is American cooking. So this is an American cookbook. I want people to know that, and I want people to recognize that development that happened um, over the two years that it took to write this and gain the confidence to talk about it so clearly. And I don't even think I said the word like or um yet. So I, I just feel very strongly about this, clear, clearly. <laughs> yeah, no, and then you finally answered my question. So it took you about two years from, to, to write and develop the book. Well, that's not bad. That That's actually pretty pretty average to, to, to fast. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, that make that 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 makes sense, and I think I don't know if it's in the book or somewhere else. You make the point too that you know 
you're prepared for people saying like, well, this isn't authentically Korean or even Uh. authentically Korean American. And you make the point that like, actually that's all relative and there's almost no such thing. And I, I, it struck me, I remember this very succinctly because um, Uh. uh, my mother-in-law is a a food writer as well and ran a cooking school called Lavarin. And she was like, you know, taught me, this is how you make an omelet. And then it was years later where I was like, that isn't how Julia makes an omelet. And she's a French trained person and it's totally different. And then I realized every person who's French trained, whoever taught them French cooking had their omelet method. And that is the quote unquote correct one, which there is no correct one. Yeah, that's a great, great point. And I think you're, you're sort of making that point about Korean American food as well or Korean food in general. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I do think I just want people to to open their their minds and expand their ideas about what cuisines, whole cuisines are and whole swaths of lived experiences. You know, these are human beings. They're not anthropological studies. Like this is not a cookbook that's going to show you how all of Korean Americans cook. It's it's the way my family does it. And at the same time, as a memoir writer, I really believe that it's in the specifics where you're able to find universal truths and universal culinary truths because I just don't think that the way I just don't think that defining one way of doing something is helpful for anyone because it's so fun to learn how to cook something differently than the way you did it. And it changes the way you see food. And I'm so grateful to work at a company with with beautiful editors and writers and talented cooks who acknowledge that by following a recipe as it is written and honoring that cook's method, you you can expand your concept of how to do something. Like for instance, I have a, I have a bread recipe coming out soon. It's like kind of the big bread. It's I call it the I call it a butt bread, but it's because it looks like a butt. But um, don't tell my bosses that. It, it, it's very, <laughs> it's really that's delicious. Not the the point- ha- that's not going to be the headline title. <laughs> no, I don't think. So. I, I hope not. Uh, but I, they always surprise me though. But I, I do think this bread is delicious. But it's just so unconventional because before I developed it. I had never really written a bread recipe before, and I, but I had ideas about what I wanted the experience to be for my readers and for myself. Like, I'm lazy, and I, I, there are some details that a lot of recipes call for, like proofing your yeast first, or you know, making sure that you knead it until it's not sticky. And there's a point where I was like, "This is good enough for me. It's not going to be like that, you know, that 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 loaf that you're thinking of." But you arrive at something brand new, I think, and it's a delicious loaf of bread. It tastes like maple syrup, very deeply flavored, and the structure of the bread, it just tastes like homemade bread. It's not like a store-bought loaf that's kind of plasticky. You know? it's, and I just think in that way, I'm, I, I stopped apologizing for my lack of training because I think my lack of training makes the recipes kind of weird and quirky. And, <laughs> and I, 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 I'm, I'm able to uncover some things in cooking that I'm kind of upend some myths that we have arbitrarily as as home cooks. Yeah, I, w- I wanted to ask you about that because I couldn't find it anywhere. And um, just mm. going back to your mom, for example, your mom is a home cook. She's not. She never went to cooking yes. school. She didn't work at a restaurant. She's just as many great moms and great home cooks are. She's just good at it, right? And and obviously, she was probably taught by family members. And is that the same for you? Is the only person who quote unquote taught you cooking is your mom, or did you go to culinary school? 
I did not go to culinary school. I, I was a I was a guard manger at a pizza restaurant down the block when I was like sixteen. <laughs> but that's about it. Like made made salads, but you know, I I think that's the. <laughs> I used to be insecure about this because you know, and it's the first question they asked me for my times interview. Um, but I don't think it was to see like what my training was. It was to see how I ended up here, and because <laughs> I think sometimes it's kind of confusing. Like, why am I here? People wonder, but I think. Like many home cooks, I think what's really valuable is, you know, the amount, just like the, the 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 amount that you are actually cooking as a home cook, the obsessions that you have, the curiosity that can't be measured in like a curriculum, I don't think. And so my my education is just from all the books I've read, all the TV I've watched. I call myself a Food Network baby, which is I like referred to this in a magazine column uh, last last month about just like a generation of young kids who, you know, my generation who learn how to cook from the television. And, and, um, my mother too, like she is an excellent cook. She's such a good cook because she cooks by instinct. And I think there are tips that I've learned from her that she didn't learn from any, any, any kind of like curriculum. And I think that's really valuable because it's the home cooking that needs to be written down because the, you know, the chef cooking, people are documenting it left and right already, you know, but who is documenting my mom's very strange knife cut for like mincing garlic, which is running through it with the back knife of the, the back blade, the, the, the dull part, and then like basically smashing it and then going through the other way with the sharp end um, to do the final mince. And you end up with this garlic mince that's much fuzzier at the edges and it melts into your food a little better, you know. I grate my garlic, but that's how she minces it. And so it's sort of this in-between. And the book is full of little gems like that, like Korean-American gems. Like, I, And what is Korean-American? I think it's like that space in-between that, um, you know, that, that hasn't been written yet. And I, that's, that was sort of my goal, to write about the ordinary in a way that, um, you know, people really maybe haven't paid attention to yet. Yeah, no, and I think that's what Julia was trying to impart on people. And what yeah. you're describing about your mom is part of her ability is from experience. She's done it a lot. And, yes. you know, she probably didn't start with that technique on garlic. It's just what she found work best from doing it thousands of times. Yes. I'm also struck by the difference between French cooking, classical French cooking and training. And my guess is that to learn to cook Korean food, even though I'm sure there are culinary schools in South Korea to work in hospitality, that the traditions of Korean food are much more home cooking traditions than codified in, in some kind of école de cuisine. Is that is that? But I don't know. Is that right? Oh my god, that's a great question. I actually don't know that I'm equipped to answer it because I haven't been to Korea in a while, and I think there are chefs who are, you know, really trying to codify a cuisine over there and doing really exciting things, but. Um, uh, you know, rather than call something home cooking versus like a culinary tradition, I would say that um, Korean food, the, the the rules are different. I think I have a whole stew chapter because I want to show how a Korean braise is different than a French braise. And because all my career until I got to the times and people, you know, thought differently and more openly, people would just constantly question my recipes. They'd be like, why aren't you searing these ribs first? And I'm like, because... There are already are all of these Air Max going in, and because this is the way Korean cooks like braise that. And but I didn't have the vocabulary back then to defend my cooking, and the fact that I had to defend it from these people who were French trained and thought that they knew best. You know, it's it's a it becomes a political thing, and cooking is political because it's how you how you decide. You know, 
who to center and whose cuisine to center. And too often in America, we're centering Frank, you know, French classic French cooking. And but but the real truth is, even classic French cooking, even home cooking in France. It's like pan sauces. It's really humble food that just is the way I cook at home as well. And um, there are really great tricks there. And I just think some people are out of touch when they are trying to compare these different cuisines that shouldn't be compared because they're singular. You know, I think the way you cook an African stew should be very different from the way you cook a French one and an American one. And anyway, I have a lot of thoughts about this that I could go on forever, but. <laughs> no, I, I think people have to get the book too, because I, I was fascinated by that description you have of the difference in braising. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think you argue it extremely well as, or explain it extremely well of why it's different and why it works and why you know, there can be more than one way. So on that note, I also wanted to ask you because you have, I don't know, it's multiple, I don't know if it's four pages or eight pages, but a whole section of making your own kimchi and a lot of talking about kimchi. And I just was curious about your take that, you know, in some ways there's the cliche that like Korean food equals kimchi. And, but then you talk about it in in a very, you don't shy away from it. It's front and center. It's a big deal in the book. And is that because it really is a truly important facet of particularly even Korean American life, or what's your take on it? Or is kimchi also a cliche? Wow! Oh, this is these are really good questions, um, Todd. I appreciate. It. <laughs> I've been doing interviews for this book, and all of your questions are. Very I'm not asking you the same questions as every other interview. Yeah, it's a great interview. Sorry. Okay, um, let me answer this question or try to answer it directly. Um, you know, first I'll answer the part of is it. Korean to love kimchi. I, you know, I'm not, I think there are people in my life who don't like kimchi, actually. There are Korean people. But I think maybe if I, the way I like to answer it is a little bit of a metaphor and maybe a little cheesy, but I think the history of kimchi-ing, that's why the chapter is called kimchi as a verb, which, you know, my, my point is that this this method of salting something to preserve it and then to, to require like bacteria to like produce the fermentation that eventually makes a vegetable or a fruit or a or seafood lasts longer. That is super Korean. It's so at the heart of um, not just the climate of Korea's harsh winters. You know, every fall they 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 do the kimjang, which is making a huge batch of kimchi out of the the fall crop. But um, I also think it has to do with just this uh, the scent. It's called han, I think, in Korean. It's this sense of Korean. A resilience and it's this sense of fiery Korean um, survival and uh, the, you know this country has been through so much and it's 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 I don't think people realize that it was a third world country until recently and um, and now it's a, a world you know it's a top top uh, top like producer of culture and pop and food and cinema and I think Koreans are really proud of cars. this but it's because cars yeah <laughs> and phones <laughs> I, I just think you know so and to just like to close the loop it's I think this, you can learn a lot about the Korean people if you learn about kimchi because it shows um, just, it's a very singularly Korean thing. You have sauerkraut, you have like other kinds of pickles, but nothing is like kimchi. Kimchi is very singular. The method of making it is very specific. It's very, it's very Korean. I can't help it. And, you know, I love the second part of your question, which was, is it an important facet of Korean American life? And I'd never thought about this, but if I were to really think about it, I think, you know, my mother, kimchi is the one thing that you can't 
you can't just like conjure from scratch. And even when you buy it store bought, I have like a couple brands I like, but they're never gonna taste like back home. And so I think it was so. It's such an important thing that Korean immigrants, when they came over, they had to make their own kimchi because that <laughs> that was the only way they could eat that food. Imagine not being able to eat the food of your childhood unless you learn how to make it yourself. And you know, like, what's your favorite childhood dish, Todd? I'd love to, you know, like. Oh my goodness! Um, Put you on the spot. <laughs> no, well, that's a good question because I I actually I don't come from a food family. Although oddly, my mother's always hated cooking, oh, but yeah. she's still doing it, and actually, she's got, she has gotten better. Um, so I don't really. Well, I'll answer it this way because I just asked my mom for this recipe because um, uh. I I made um, a, a Claire Saffitz recipe that I think was in the New York Times as well, and it nice. turned out great and it was really well written. But it was a faff and a half. It was like making the curd and this. It was a her minty yeah. le- lime bars, and I was like. We used to make lemon bars at home, and it was it took like two seconds. And I just asked my mom for that recipe. Aww. And do you know where that recipe comes from? Where? It comes from the Kansas City Star newspaper, which oh used, used to be a much more robust uh, newspaper. And Heming- they, Hemingway wrote for it. For exactly, that, right? Hemingway wrote for it, and C.W. Guswell, if you've never read him, was a long time star contributor and they had something they had a food section back in the day now i'm sure it's just a reprint of some um but they not only had a food section they had a kids food section it was called and i didn't remember what it was called but my mom just showed me that she actually has a cookbook called the mini pages cookbook and with all these recipes and and sure enough it's a recipe for lemon bars which i remember very well because we made it it was delicious we used to give it to people as a gift and i could make it as like an 11 year old so um i don't think it has any any um what do you call it? Locavore connection since lemons would not normally <laughs> grow in, in Kansas City. But right, um, right, right, right. That, that is definitely one. And, and I'm excited to uh, make it and, and, and see. And I've already decided oh like I'm going to add something to it that it doesn't have. So what are you going to yeah. add? Cardamom? <laughs> no, no, not that exotic. I just think I'm like, and this is taking from Claire's recipe. It I was shocked that it only calls for two tablespoons of lemon juice. That's like all the lemon in the oh, recipe. And I'm like, ooh, I think yeah, I'm yeah. going to add the zest to the crust. Right. Oh, I do that too. I like that a lot. Um, I love that recipe, by the way. That sounds great. I'm really <laughs> glad I asked the question. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, I'll share it with you. <laughs> I think I might make them Thank first you. and see if my memory. Um, okay. <laughs> oh, well, that's the, that's the beauty of writing about. You know, and that's the beauty about learning how to cook your childhood favorite thing and then also like tasting it. Cause, you know, I think we think that the thing that we grew up with has to be like stuck in time. But in reality, what we're actually chasing is not the recipe. We're chasing the taste memory. And I think as long as the memory is the same, the memory of that dish, which is usually our taste buds change every seven years. So it's never going to be. Those those Dunkaroos, they don't taste as good as they did in 1995, you know. So, like, I think the point is just approximating the the flavor to match your memory of it is more important than anything else. And I, I really believe in that. And that's I think that's what this book is full of. It's just full of taste memories. Platonic ideals of what I thought these dishes were from my childhood, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's terrific. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a break (laughs) and we'll be back to hear Eric's Julia moment, which I'm excited to hear what he says. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, you can tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. 
HRN is dedicated to amplifying small businesses that keep our communities vibrant. Today, I'm asking business owners to take part in our business membership drive by supporting HRN's mission with a $500 membership. HRN will shine a light on your work, and you'll help sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive on-air mentions, social media posts, listings on our website, and more. You'll also play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org biz to become a business member today. That's heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. Thank you for your support. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's mortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Eric, what's your Julia Moment? Uh, it's... I, mean, I can't believe you played that clip. It's actually related to that clip. So <laughs> uh, it's, it's kind of embarrassing, but I, I did my first TV segment recently um, on one of those huge morning shows, you know, and it just... Uh, was like it, the tech, you there was some probably technical. say it because I think Julia was on it. Was it GMA? <laughs> oh, <laughs> it was GMA. and You know Julia was, GMA was on and, GMA for years. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like... Okay, so it's funny because I felt so alone that day because I'm really hard on myself usually when, when I don't love the way my performance went or I don't like the way I spoke. And I, I think I was I had just driven from Atlanta to New York through a blizzard. I like chased the blizzard to make it back to my New York apartment so I can make this segment in time. And so I was cooking. I was like a little stressed and my brain was buzzing. It was going blank. It was like that stage fright thing. And I just felt so I felt so bad about it. And then of course, afterwards, I talked to my friend Rick and uh, Rick Martinez. He's I'm, I'm saying his last name because he has a book coming out soon too, and we keep like plugging each other because we're anyway. Um, he he gave he sent friends, me that because we're, we're friends. But he sent me that that clip. He's, he he texted me that clip. He was like, Eric, this is actually like what people were endeared by in regard. Like when Julia did this, people loved it, and you just have to be yourself. And 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 then of course my. You know, other people in my life were just so supportive, and they're like, "Actually, Eric, this is this is better than if you were polished. Like, you should you should lean into the the mess ups." And I think once I was able to let that go, my segments got a little better, and I was just able to relax and be like, "You know, I'm not perfect. It's never going to be perfect. It's a four minute segment where you're like squeezing in, you know, 15 minutes of cooking." And I think that I don't know. In that way, I just forgot that I wasn't alone. It's part of. I don't. It, it feels like a little. Um, you know, almost self-aggrandizing to try to say that you're part of some genealogy. But um, I do recognize when, you know, I look through archives and I, I notice that this famous person or this famous person or this person that I really looked up to kind of went through the same thing. That feels really great and to know that you're not alone through in this genealogy, which is cooking on TV. It's very, ran- it's a weird thing. It's random. <laughs> no one, not many people do it. So <laughs> I just like, I don't know how I ended up here, but it's sort of this thing that um, I've sort of started to let go, um, let go when I, while I'm doing it. Yeah. 
No, well, and that's what exactly what Julia did. And if you watch Julia's shows back, particularly the old ones, she messes up yeah. constantly. Sometimes she can barely <laughs> get the sentence out. But I think it, it, it's exactly what it is. And someone said that to me when I was began hosting this podcast is, it's okay if you make a mistake. Everything doesn't have to be perfect. It makes you seem human and people appreciate that. And, yes. And in your defense, cooking on TV is literally the hardest thing you can do because it's, so it's literally yeah. like beat the clock. And there's never enough time to even do what you've mapped out to the time. And then the host might ask you a question. And it's like, yeah. it's almost impossible. So you have to just, I think <laughs> I always lean into what Julia taught, which is you prepare to the max and once the camera starts rolling, you just let it all go and you go with the flow. But it's the preparation that enables your flow to just somehow magically work, even if it's not the plan. Yeah. Does that help? God. That could make that could make me cry. Yeah, that does help. I just think um, <laughs> we all have to just like let go a little bit, I think. You know, right when you started this segment, right when you started your introduction, you know, monologue, your speech, I was like, damn, that was perfect. He really talks well and... <laughs> I oh like, really? I actually I, I, mixed up yeah. six different lines because I can't um because I'm working from makeshift recording. Right now. Uh, <laughs> so see, oh there you God. go. I just proved my <laughs> theory, which is all learned from Julia. Uh, so well thank yeah, you for she that. Taught us and, so much. Yeah. No, she did. And and I remember that all the time. I give people that advice all the time. Julia taught you prepare, prepare, prepare. And once yeah, you're on, yes, yes. you let go. And it just what happens, happens. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Such a, such a fun interview. And thanks, everyone, for listening. To check out more of Eric's writing, you can go to erickim.net. And he's at Eric Junho on Twitter and Instagram. The cookbook is Korean American Food That Tastes Like Home by Eric Kim with photographs by Jenny Wang. It's out now from Clarkson Potter. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. Keep up with the foundation. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T Shulkin on Twitter. Be sure to follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram. The lineup for the 2022 Taste of Santa Barbara is live on SBCE.events. Join us to eat and drink our way across Santa Barbara County, May 16th to 22nd. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network today is Armin. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. All right, <laughs> there we go. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it 
without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. We look forward to bringing you back into the... See, I just messed that up. <laughs> <laughs> it's the last line I have to do. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. It's so real. And one I do every episode. <laughs> so, here you go.